brothers and sisters, as mentioned earlier today, we're going to be in the 40th Psalm and hearing of the great news of God's salvation that's for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, This particular psalm is another one that is explicitly messianic, explicitly testifying of Christ for uh, in verses six through eight. Uh, are applied specifically to Christ in Hebrews chapter 10. That this man, while David is praying this, is ultimately speaking and testifying to Christ. Let us hear from the psalm. In psalm 40, let's hear from the entirety of the psalm. We'll actually be going through verse 10 today. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in his mouth, in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Sacrifices, sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I do delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. For you, O Lord, will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard your word. We ask that you would take your word and by it increase and strengthen our faith. Point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us from your word a fresh revelation of Christ that we might hope upon him and rest in him. 
We ask you would uh, be with this preacher, that you would keep him chained to your word, so he might freely declare your truth. Help him to be accurate, to be faithful, and to be clear. So, Lord, we ask that from your word today, you speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at Psalm 40, we see, obviously, that it follows the 39th Psalm. But it not only follows it in order, it follows it in context. And so remember, Psalm 39 finished, in a way, without, revolu- without resolution. It was a psalm of lament, and it ended in a sense of, this is not finished. We don't have a sense of hope. We don't have a sense of God coming to the rescue to our psalmist. Like Psalm 88, which goes through a lament, does not have, res- have resolution. This one ended in this sense, in 39. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Psalm 39 finishes on what we might call a downer. It finishes on a sense of where is God in all this? Psalm 40 follows this not only in order, but serves likely as an answer to this prayer. We see in this psalm, as we will see in a little bit, that in David, while he's testifying in his own circumstances, he is serving as a type and testimony of Christ who is to come, based on what we have in verses 6, 7, and 8. We see that Christ is the one who has come to save us. That as having been redeemed, we have great reason to sing of his greatness and of his good things to us. That in the redemption that Christ has given to us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, we indeed have this glorious and great news of our salvation and of our truth that gives meaning to to these laments like we see in Psalm 38 and Psalm 39, or meaning to the laments like we see in Psalm 88. For example, if we saw Psalm 39 and we saw how that ended on a note of lack of hope, listen to the end of Psalm 88, which is entirely a lament. And he says, You have caused my beloved and my friend, my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's how Psalm 88 ends. And Psalm 38 ended in a similar way. And we, we have what appears to be an answer. Many times when we read the Psalms, we want to read them, just as we do with a lot of Scripture, as little isolated things. Not having, uh, not having connection with things that came before and after. Because we look to Scripture often for proof texts to prove something which proof texts do are a valid way of understanding theology. But if that's all we're approaching, we're missing the richness of what's in text. And we see the answer to that. And we see the answer in this, that 
though the psalmist in verses 1 through 3, we see the first section of this. He says, I waited and the Lord answered. We can look at the life of David and in many occasions he found himself in great despair. He found himself in great gloom. He found himself in great danger and he waited for the Lord and trusted him and he found deliverance. We think of when he stood before Goliath or he was betrayed by his own son and driven out of his kingdom or where he had to go and pretend to be a madman or when he before he became king when he was chased down being chased down by Saul and hidden in a cave and rather than seeking to find his own vengeance he spared the life of Saul when Saul came into the same cave not knowing that David was in there and in many occasions he saw God's deliverance He saw that he had been in a pit of destruction in a miry bog, but he found that his feet were upon the rock, resting in and trusting God's promise, trusting in God's faithfulness to his covenant, to his word. Thus, he has every reason to sing, as we see in verse 3. We find ourselves in many times in situations where we would cry out to God for deliverance, And we may find ourselves with Psalm 39 on our plate where we don't seem to have any sort of resolution. God has not promised that in this life that we will have all the things that we think we need to have and uh, and all the various different things for which we ask. He's not promised to give us anything and everything which we perceive to want. And perceive to need. But yet, even in those circumstances, we can say with David here, I waited patiently for the Lord because of the fact that in testifying to God's deliverances, David is testifying to one that from his perspective, from his place in time, was yet to come. The one who is the greater David, the one who is the the one who is in the lineage of David, who is the promised Messiah, who is the promised King. I mentioned earlier, verses six through eight, and sacrifice and offerings. You have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. If you've been following in our series in our series in the in the book of Hebrews, that may sound a little bit familiar. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, that is appropriated and applied to Christ. That while David was speaking this and and doing this, the Holy Spirit was in reality testifying of Christ. Thus this psalm is telling us about the salvation that Christ has brought for us. Consider this. Our Lord in his own humanity according to his humanity cried out for help. 
He cried out for deliverance in his humanity. There in the garden, he said, if there's any other way we can accomplish it, let us do it this way. Nonetheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. He even expected it. He prayed for others as well. And he received the Father's help. And he himself found that deliverance. For he himself was brought very low. He was brought into that miry pit. For he died and was thrown into the tomb. Endured the agonies in his crucifixion of what was due to us. But he indeed, he rose to victory. And in that, we have every reason to say, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Because Jesus died and because he rose from the dead, because he went to the miry bog on our behalf, we have the sure and certain foundation because he himself rose from the dead. Charles Spurgeon says, speaking of verse 2, when our Lord bore in his own person the terrible curse which was due to sin, he was so cast down as to be like a prisoner in a deep, dark, fearful dungeon amid whose horrible glooms the captives heard a noise, the captive heard a noise as of rushing torrents, while over her overhead resounded the tramp of furious foes. For indeed, as Spurgeon is saying, our anguish was cast upon him. But he was delivered, for he rose from the dead. And thus he does not fail to bring us deliverance out of our own griefs, out of our own pains, out of our own sin. Indeed, while we have much grief and we have much pain and we have much distress, we have this surety that there is coming a day when there'll be no more grief, when there'll be no more distress, when there shall be no more of that pain and that sorrow. Because Christ died and rose from the dead. Because we can take hope in these in words like this. I have a I have many favorite resurrection songs, and that I like them all that are biblically sound. There's one that I really like listening to, but I dare not try to do it as a congregation because it is very complicated musically, and I don't think a church would be many churches would be able to sing it. But it's an older song, came out in the 90s. It was called Arise, My Love. Arise, My Love. But hear this. Not a word was heard at the tomb that day, just shuffling of soldiers' feet as they guarded the grave. One day, two days, three days had passed. Could it be that Jesus breathed his last? Could it be that his father had forsaken him, turned his back on his son, Despising our sin, all hell, all hell seemed to whisper, just forget him, he's dead. Then the father looked down to his son and he said, 
Arise, my love, arise, my love. The grave no longer has a hold on you. No more death sting, no more suffering. Arise, arise, my love. You see, our cry has been answered. It's been answered to us in Jesus Christ. Our need to be out of that pit of our sin has been answered to us in Christ. To know that Jesus, our Lord, is a sure foundation for us. What a comfort that is, my brothers and sisters. That Jesus is for us our sure foundation. He is fixed firmly. Eternally able to save to the uttermost all those who are brought to him. Jesus is the true. We think of all the various different folks in the Old, in the Old Testament stories, the Hebrew scriptures, who did many great things. We think of Joseph and how he was brought out of his pit. Uh, we think of David, who wrote this psalm. We can think of Gideon. We can think of countless others. We can think of Israel. That is Jacob who even in spite of his deviousness, remember, as I've said before, when I read, when the first time I read that story between Jacob and Esau, I said, Esau's the good guy here. The first time I read it. Of course, Esau was no good guy either. But in all those things, Jesus is the true Joseph. Jesus is the fulfillment of David. Jesus is testified to in Gideon's deliverances. Jesus is testified to in all the various different others. We often wish to read and see ourselves in in David's shoes or in Joseph's shoes and say, If I could just be like Joseph, if I could just be like Daniel, if I could just be like them, I could defeat my giants, I could defeat my foes. And so I'm going to be David. And so we take on the Gideon of our life and discover that our, metaphorically speaking, our feet and legs were cut off. You see, my brothers and sisters, you and I are not Joseph, you and I are not David. We, you and I, our faithless Israel, needing a hero. That hero is Jesus. He is the one who was brought out of the miry clay for us. He is the one who has put a song in our mouth. Indeed, great praises were sung in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And how we will praise him. How we will look to him. Just look at the book of Revelation and see how his people praise him and sing that song in his mouth. We often read that and say that means we always need to be writing constantly new songs. Any song that comes from a redeemed heart, even if it's a 2,000 year old song, is a new song. My brothers and sisters. Even if it's a two-minute old song, it's a new song. 
Back to Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Many will see and fear this. It says, after, I lo- after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And this, my brothers and sisters, is our future because we stand upon a rock, a secure rock. That rock, my brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ. Who was testified to in this psalm. Who was brought into the pit of destruction. And was brought out of that pit. For our redemption. For our hope. This one. Who is the sacrifice. In verses 4 through six, four through 5, we have our next movement in which we have a, re, a familiar refrain in the scriptures, which is blessed. Blessed is the man. The Psalms open with that phrase. Blessed is the man who does not sit, who does not, uh, who does not sit, who does not stand, who does not walk in the way of wicked people. Who is this one who is blessed? This one who is God's favor. For it says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Who is this one? Who is blessed by God? Is it one we might look at and say who through many feats of strength has accomplished a whole lot? Is it someone who is shown to be blessed because he has been able to impose his will on other people? Is that the one who is blessed? Is it the one who is 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 the is the fact that somebody has amassed all sorts of things to themselves? The testimony that God, that they are blessed of God? No. It says this, it is the one who has trust in the Lord our God. That is the one who is blessed of God. Putting trust in our Lord God who sent His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who trusted the Father without fail, without error on our behalf. Who is that blessed man? That blessed man is our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him we are blessed. In Him we are the blessed people. For in Him we trust mentioned earlier, Psalm 1, 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." might look at that and one of we might be tempted to i know i have and i'm sure some of us will say yeah I'm, i think that's me i don't walk in the counsel of the wicked I, yeah i think that's me and i must say to myself i am a liar if i'm saying that christ is that blessed man he is the one who fulfilled all those things and it is by his righteousness we stand In fact, in trusting him, we are brought to him. It says, blessed is the man who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Spurgeon again says, the proud expect all men to bow down and do them reverence as if the worship of the golden calves were again set up in Israel. But believing men are too noble to honor these mere money bags, or cringe before bombastic dignity. The righteous pay their respect to humble goodness rather than to inflated consequences. For the man or woman who is blessed because they do not trust in themselves, but they trust in the Lord our God. In humility and not in pride. Because our Lord is the one, indeed, who truly was humble. For he laid his life down for our sins. Indeed, my brothers and sisters, the history of the human race is a history of pride. From the very beginning in the garden. The pride to say, I want what I don't have the right to have. To be like God. To know what God knows it was an attempt in human in pride to to cross over the creature creator distinction and from then on the history of human race has been a history of pride of arrogance of self-servingness immediately in genesis chapter 4 Cain, in his pride, kills his brother. And then the descendants of Cain, in pride, make much of themselves. In Genesis 11, humanity, in its pride, seeks to make its way to God. We move on to Romans and Romans 1. And the human race, in its pride, seeks to exalt in the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1 is not about any particular society. It is the human race of which he is speaking. If we read the whole flow, it's about the entire human race. Pride exalts exalts itself in our strength. 
We seek to make much of ourselves. Pride exalts in the apparent strength of ourselves and fails to recognize how incredibly weak we are. In the modern era, modern not meaning the last 10 years, but modern meaning going back to about mid-1700s, that's considered the modern era. I cannot think of a worldview or philosophy that expresses human pride any more than Nietzscheism. Nietzsche said, God is dead. What he meant by that is that in the, mind, in the consciences of humans, God is dead and don't have a basis for meaning. And he grieved that because he said it was meaning. So now we must find a new source of meaning. And he gave several different ideas. But for him, the ultimate source of meaning was the will to have power. In fact, the will to have power to impose that will on everyone else. That is the ultimate meaning. Let us hear the word of these awful words of someone who is gripped by Nietzscheism. As he gave a rallying speech to his subordinates about 85 years ago. Pardon me, I have a hard time reading this. It's so awful. It is not right that matters, but victory. Close your hearts to pity. Act brutally. The stronger man is right. Be harsh and remorseless. Whoever has pondered over this world's order knows that its meaning lies in the success of the best by means of force. Given about a week before Germany invaded Poland by Adolf Hitler to his generals. But our Lord Jesus is our bright example. He did not seek the flattery of kings, nor did seeking the honor of great ones fall from his lips. He only honored God and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And in trusting him, we have our hope and our joy. Because of what he has done. We have this truth as well. Verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. If we look all around us, we can see in God's providence, in his creation, the many good works of God. We can see in his creation the beautiful trees, the beautiful sun on a few days of the year. Uh, we can see the wonderful mountains again on a few days of the year. When the, when the skies are clear or the beautiful water. Or for those who uh, like um, reds and browns to see the painted rocks in Oregon or uh, or uh, folks who are really energetic and uh, enjoy these things to which I don't understand uh, the the Death Valley in uh, in Nevada but to each their own those are all God's creation and testify of his goodness and testify of his greatness 
in his sustaining of the wicked and rebellious human race through his works of providence. I mean, think about it. The fact that we have not obliterated ourselves to extinction. God has sustained the human race in order that the full number of the elect might come to him. But all of this pales in comparison to God's mighty work of redemption to us in Jesus Christ. My brother and sister, do we want to recount the wondrous deeds of God towards us? Then let us look to what God has done for us in Christ, to what we just recognized, to what we was just testified to us in our hearts in the Lord's Supper. Let us recount the old, old story. As that hymn says, tell me the old, old story. And I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Think of this, our Lord Jesus proclaimed and told of God's goodness and of his works. And he told of them through his own acts. The, uh, the John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 sent his disciples to talk to Jesus and say, So Jesus, are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? Because John was expecting some fire. He was expecting a social, political, national revolution. But that hadn't happened. He said, look around you. What do you see? He said, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the poor have good news preached to them. Quoting Isaiah 35. He testified of all those. And he proclaimed of all all that. And so we proclaim that through our song, through our declaration. Jesus' resurrection, Romans 1 said a declaration happened. Jesus was declared to be Son of God. In his resurrection, this was proclaimed and declared. And so we testify, my brothers and sisters, to one another here in our worship tell of these things and cannot ever get old for us that old old story can never become old as in worn out as in tired as in I don't need to hear that again for the moment we say that is the moment we are turning to the proud saying I don't need that We mentioned earlier in verses six through eight, which we and eight, which we read a little while ago. It's quoted in Hebrews ten, verses five through ten. Let us hear the appropriation of that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, "Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepare, have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and, and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. 
He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, Jesus Christ came into human history to be that sacrifice to do the will of God. Every aspect of his life, he obeyed God's law. He did God's will in his humanity as one of us. For us. And he humbled himself to the point of death. Such that. We no longer. Suffer. The eternal punishment. Indeed. God in Christ. Accomplished his will. And did for us what we could not do. For ourselves. Jesus is that great sacrifices, sacrifice. None of the sacrifices that have ever been offered, even those under the Mosaic Covenant, nor any sacrifice we could ever offer can sanctify us to God, set us apart unto Him, bring us into right relation to Him, bringing to us the righteousness that is by faith, bringing us redemption from our sin. None and nothing else can do that. The scroll of the book testifies of Christ. He's come to do his will. And by that will, we have been saved. Because Jesus delighted to do the will of God. Because the law of God was within his heart without failure, without error. He Because he did God's will. The fact that we refuse to do God's will has been atoned. By his righteousness, by his doing God's will, that is counted on our behalf. And as a result, verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Our Lord declared the message of the kingdom. That kingdom by which you would bring about deliverance. His rule in Christ Jesus and his establishment of a new people composed of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, and language. He declared the message of that kingdom immediately in the Gospels. He says, and he declared, and he said, the kingdom of God is like. And he came preaching the kingdom of God. He declared his coming redemption. He declared his death and resurrection. Now that being given to us, just as David did on many occasions in his many deliverances, he declared the praises of God. So we, because Christ delivered us, must tell of this glad news of deliverance. Every time we gather, we have sung over and over that good news. We have read of it. We had it testified to us, to our hearts, in the communion. 
and do so in the great congregation. What is this great congregation? It is indeed all of God's people of all time. He has made himself known to all of his people. David said in the great congregation, his own context at the gathering of God's people, at the festivals, he would testify of his deliverance, all going back to their corporate deliverance in the Exodus and to his own deliverances. So we... Here in this body, which is a microcosm of this great congregation, an outpost of that people. When we come together, we are declaring that good news of deliverance. Our lips not being restrained. The plan of making and bringing redemption was well known throughout the scriptures, but it was not clearly seen. But our Lord Christ knew it. He poured forth these truths in his words and in his life. He spoke of these things, our Lord. And so we must not hide these things. We must speak them, for he has done these for us. We must encourage one another in these truths. As opportunity arises... We share with those who don't know Christ. Our righteousness is His. That is our boast. That is our deliverance. He says, I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. What, of what is it that we speak? There's a word, I think, that I just said, and that I just said again, and I just said again, that I think we speak far too much. And that is the word I. And he says here, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. Giving credit to him. God's love in Christ is and was conspicuous. That it was seen. So we must not withhold the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. from One another from those who need it. Or from his faithfulness. To declare his faithfulness. From the. Uh, de- withholding it from one another. And from those who need it. And even in so doing. We do so. And must do so. With humility. With tactfulness as well. That is, if we wish to share Christ with somebody and that person does not want to hear, we have, we have a couple of choices before us. We could be like the proud man and seek to impose our will on the person or we could let them go. And Jesus said something about that. He said, shake the dust off your feet. So, my brothers and sisters, we experience various different heartaches and pains, difficulties, tears, even our own, and all rooted in our own sin. And we're still plagued by sin, but we have this glorious truth set before us that this one who is the rock, 
The reason David waited patiently for the Lord and the reason he found deliverance because there was a coming deliverer. And so we have found deliverance because that deliverer has come. And so we can say, even when we're in a, in a, in a moment, when we all we can say is, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. We can say, I waited patient for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Because Jesus lived, because Jesus died, because Jesus rose from the dead. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth. We pray, our Lord, that you would minister to this afresh in our hearts. Grow us in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we pray these things, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.